Praise God. So this morning is December 11th. It is 2011. We are racing towards our new year. Our message this morning is going to be called the Anointed Son. Anointed Son, S-O-N. So why don't you turn to Isaiah? We'll be in Isaiah 42. While you turn there, I want to read you something. Uh, Brother Fred gave me this, and I believe that it came out of a Gideon's Bible, although no one seems to know who actually wrote it. It's been around Christian circles for a long time. It says, The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy. Its precepts are binding. Its histories are true. And its decisions immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here paradise is restored, heaven opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject, our good, the design, and the glory of God, its end. It should fill the memory, rule the heart, and guide the feet. Read it slowly, frequently, and prayerfully. It is a mine of wealth, a paradise of glory, and a river of pleasure. It is given you in life, will be opened at the judgment, and will be remembered forever. It involves the highest responsibility, will reward the greatest labor, and will condemn all who trifle with its sacred contents. It's an amazing thing. When we read the Bible... It contains life. It is the Word of God. And we're all good with that when we talk about the Bible. As long as we say B-I-B-L-E, we're good with that. As soon as we begin speaking about specific portions of the Bible, we tend to want to segment it. We tend to want to think of this portion as different than that portion. We even call one section the old and the other section the new. And then in the old, we single out certain parts and go, oh, this, this was for restriction for those crazy wild people, right? Now, when I say we, I just mean these are popular Christian thoughts. I would like to submit to you today the idea that every word of the Bible, those statements I read about, are true about. That in some way, the Bible is instructions for your life, life, cheer, glory, in every single page. Can you say that sometimes when you're reading through Leviticus, you guys haven't made it there yet in your Bible reading plan, I know. Sometimes you can read about the inner parts being washed, this one separated, that one burned, this one drug outside, this one waved, that one set down. You know, and you're kind of like, uh-huh, and, 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 and you don't always see it right away. But praise God, we serve a God that sees fit to conceal treasure in fields, Michael. He sees fit to go after the pearls that are buried deep within the heart of something. I want to encourage you to seek out the truth of the Word everywhere you find it. Don't relegate any of it to the back shelf. And God will bring you life in every area of it. Are you all in Isaiah? Amen. Isaiah 42, here comes verse 21. It pleased the Lord... It pleased Yahweh for the sake of His righteousness. It pleased the Lord for the sake of His righteousness to make His law great and glorious. 
The law that proceeds from God is great and glorious. It is because of his righteousness that it is. When we read the word, we are reading about the righteous character of God, whether we're reading from the book of Revelation or we're reading from the book of Numbers. None of it is to be discarded. Every bit of it is to be mined for its wealth, and it will impact your life. Today I'm going to do something that preachers almost never do. I'm going to preach entirely out of the book of Leviticus. And I'm going to do that because in Leviticus you can find the character and heart of God revealed if you take the time to look. Now it's not the easiest sermon to preach. It's not the easiest to find. In fact, you have to be a little bit hungry for it. But if you want truth, there is a wealth of it here. And you know what? This is not what the popular Christian books are being written about. This is not what the average Christian sermon is about because we're told, man, we're in the age of grace. Could you just get to the God loves us part? There's 66 books here that all tell us the Lord loves us, but he hates sin. Something must be done with our sin problem so that we can be restored to the loving God. Can y'all say amen to that? Amen. Before we get there, though, turn to Psalm 119. I feel like this would be a, a good, uh, good prayer for us, if we would. There. I got to get there. Psalm 119 is a big psalm, yeah? In Psalm 119, let's read verse. 18. Open my eyes that I may see the wonderful things in your law. Sometimes our prayer needs to be that God will open our eyes so that we see the wonderful things in the law. In the Bible reading plan that you guys are in, I think yesterday most of you probably hit somewhere around Genesis 45, 46, something like that. Nod your head if I'm telling the truth, because I don't know. I'm, I'm on a different plan, right? And that would have put you somewhere in Matthew 21. Yeah, when we're reading these things, you're about to transition from Genesis to Exodus. And when you do, we move from long narratives to incredibly intricate details. What do you tend to do when you get to a genealogy? Skip down, right? What do you tend to do when you, when you get to the third time a sacrifice is being delineated and they're telling you specifically with each part of the body what to do and how it's to be burned and what you eat and how it has to be offered? You tend to look for the next narrative. I want to show you some things in the Word today, but we have to pray that the Lord opens our eyes to see the wonderful things. Can you all give me one more thing out of Psalm 119 while we're here? Yeah. This is the disclaimer, the footnote for my critics, if we will. And I'm pleased that this is a family not, not full of those. Look at Psalm 119, verse 174. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. The law never was salvation, never has been salvation. It is an extreme twisting of the law to make it salvation. What the law has always been is a delight to the righteous because it reveals the character of God and it shows us the right way to live. You long for salvation, something that has to be credited to you, and you live in accordance with the law. Does that make sense? One is a manner by which we walk, and the other is that which has to be credited to us and could never be earned. They are two 
separate things. Good. Now my disclaimer's out of the way. Let's go to Leviticus 5. Tell me when you're there. Look, I even mentioned Leviticus. Y'all yeah. all already got quiet. Yeah. Keith, do you want to hear something about yeah. Leviticus today? Indeed. Well, Keith's studying to be a lawyer. So if he says yes, then we're going to go there. <laughs> Leviticus 5.1. If a person sins because he does not speak up when he hears a public charge to testify regarding something he has seen or learned about, he will be held responsible. My goodness, what could be gleaned in the church from a statement like that? Did you hear that you're held responsible for not speaking up? Are you kidding me? So when there is a public charge, something that is said out in the public, a charge, and you have knowledge about it, and you do not speak up, if you were in ancient Israel, that would be defined clearly as sin. Well, good thing that's the Older Testament, and it doesn't work that way in the Newer Testament, right? Does anybody have the book of James in their Bible? Does your James have a fourth chapter like my James does? Does it have a 17th verse like mine does? Because the 17th verse of the fourth chapter of the book of James says, anyone who knows the good that they ought to do and does not do it, sins. And yet our church community feels as if we're entirely fine just sitting on the wayside listening to public charges against Jesus, against His bride, against everything else, and never speaking up because, you know, we just don't want to make waves. God calls that sin. I would like to tell you that there should be a holy compulsion in you, a fire shut up in your bones that says, I can't help but tell. The very first kind of sin that is being addressed when we talk about guilt offerings is the man who fails to testify. Did Jesus ever address anything like failing to testify. Keep your finger here and turn with me to Mark 8. You'll like that you get to go to the Gospels, right? This is where us New Testament pastors are supposed to preach from. And the neat thing about it is, you know, the Older Testament is so judgmental and the New Testament is so full of grace. Isn't that what we hear all of the time? Let's look at Mark 8. How about we start in verse 38. Tell me when you're there. There. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Why didn't he just preach more love? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. If you are so ashamed of him today that you cannot stand up for him when people publicly malign him... He says he'll be ashamed of us on the day that he returns. My goodness. It sounds like there's perfect agreement between Jesus' words and the first verses of Leviticus 5. It sounds like God still has the same unchanging righteous character that says, I expect my people who know the truth to speak the truth. Oh my goodness. Church, let us take that thought into the missions world. How many of us know the saving truth of Jesus but have failed to share it with the people on our street? How many of us know the saving truth of Jesus but have failed to take it to any other place? How many of us are not even laboring in prayer for that but are praying for new things? Things of any kind. 
cars, clothes, bonuses, I don't know. But we're not praying that we have the chance to testify to the truth we've been given. Now here's my heart in telling you this. Older, newer, testament makes no difference. The unchanging nature of God and His promise is clear in the Word. He, he, he shows us, He enlightens us for one purpose. He wants us to tell. He said, well, I didn't feel the anointing, you know. Well, you don't have to feel the anointing if you hear a public charge and you don't do anything about it. For instance, if the President of the United States stands up and makes fun of the book of Deuteronomy on the floor of the Congress and we have no comment on the matter, something might be wrong. If a person sins because he does not speak up when he hears a public charge to testify regarding something he has seen or learned about, he will be held responsible. Look at this next one. Or if a person touches anything ceremonially unclean, whether the carcasses of unclean wild animals or of unclean livestock or of unclean creatures that move along the ground, even though he is unaware of it, he has become unclean and is guilty. I want to read one more verse along those lines. Or if he touches human uncleanness, anything that would make him unclean, even though he is unaware of it, when he learns of it, he will be guilty. Apparently participating in uncleanness with anything in the creation. Participating, having a hand in, touching anything that is unclean in humankind is something that God says causes guilt. But we have no problem saying, you know, I, I, I know I was with them, but I wasn't doing what they were doing. God said, if you have a hand in it, if it touches it, it is guilt. He, he goes through a very specific order. First, we start talking about if you know the truth and don't speak up, that should cause you shame. If with the animal creation, the rest of the world, the things that were put under your control, you have a hand in their rebellion in any way, that should cause you shame. Then we elevate to the highest of all. If your rebellion, your participation in sin, your idolatry, go so far as to include other human beings. That should cause you shame. You know, it's interesting because the book of Romans speaks about this in exactly the same way. Keep your finger here. Turn with me to Romans 1. Did you think when I said we were going to preach out of Leviticus, we would only be in Leviticus? One of the goals of my life is to show agreement between the Older and the Newer Testament. In fact, I don't see a division between them at all. I see it as one contiguous revelation of God. Tell me when you're in Romans, the first chapter. In Romans, the first chapter, looking at the 21st verse. Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thanking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We start with people who have knowledge of the truth, but are not glorifying Him through their speech and actions. Now watch. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So, well, how could anybody do that? Anytime we know what God says about a subject, but we decide we want the Britney Spears album anyway. Anytime we know what God says about a subject, but instead we just want to be like everybody else. What begins to happen to us is we are exchanging the glory that God has for us for an idol of the world. Maybe it's not carved out of stone. In fact, it might have leather laces on it and be made of pigskin. 
We're exchanging glory that could be ours for something that they worship. And it starts with things. And then it moves to people. Look at this next line. Therefore God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and degrading their bodies with one another. Idolatry never starts at the worst levels. It starts with what we approve of through tacit approval. What we don't speak out against. What we have been backed into a corner and taught to accept. For instance, in our time, because of political correctness, which is a myth and a misnomer that you ought to completely reject, things are either true or they are not true. You ought to completely, utterly, totally reject the idea of political correctness. Jesus himself called people sons of the devil, broods of vipers. There was nothing politically correct about the Apostle Paul when he said he wished those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh, would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. This was not politically correct language. But it starts when we refuse to call evil, evil, and good, good. We refuse to draw a line, stand up, and be counted with the righteous. Instead, we somehow timidly are backed off into the shadows, satisfied with the fact that we didn't actually do anything wrong. Of course, God's Word, based on God's character from beginning to end, teaches that in and of itself is wrong. The church was never meant to be a lion without teeth a puppy dog in the world's lap to be petted and adored and pulled out when they need something. It was not supposed to be that way. An idolatry that starts with a desire for things and acceptance moves right into treating people who are made in the image of God as something less than that, something degrading. The ultimate expression of that is murdering each other and degrading bodies with each other. This is an ultimate expression of the rebellion for God. Y'all go back in Leviticus 5. Go there for a second. This is an interesting thing. We start with failing to testify. We move into participating in some way, having a hand in some kind of uncleanness. Look at verse 4. Or if a person thoughtlessly takes an oath to do anything, whether good or evil, in any matter one might carelessly swear about, even though he is unaware of it, in any case, when he learns of it, he will be guilty. You read that and you go, what does that mean? Well, it might mean what Jesus said. Don't swear by anything, whether it's in heaven or on earth. That might be a perfect interpretation since he's the perfect embodiment of the law. But in your readings this week, you read Matthew 21, was that right? Mm -hmm. In Matthew 21, wasn't there a man that had two sons? One said, the father said, hey, I want you to go work with me. And he said, no. And he did do it. Was it evil to say no? Yeah, it was evil to be disobedient, to make an oath that was defiant of the father. The other said, yes, but did not go. It is wrong for us to promise to do good and not do it, and it's wrong for us to promise to do evil, and do it. <laughs> the Word is teaching us to be men of intention, to actually set God's will before our own will. Jesus taught on this subject all of the time. You know why? Maybe He could look into the future and see a day when those who called themselves Christians, followers of Christ, a word Jesus never used, but in any case, Christians, 
would all gather into buildings that they would call a church, although the Bible never calls a building a church, and gathered into that church, some would refuse to go in because they would say, those people are all hypocrites. They promise and don't do. They do, and it's against what they teach. Maybe it was important to him from Leviticus all the way through that we actually were men and women of our word. And that the word that we were keeping was a good word. There are some promises you shouldn't keep. You sin twice. You sin when you made the promise and you sin when you fulfilled it. The book of Leviticus covers all of the ways in which we sin. You know what's interesting though? Earlier in the chapter, starting in somewhere around the fourth chapter, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, when anyone sins, what's that word? Unintentionally. The fourth chapter deals with a sin offering. The word sin in Hebrew is chata. It means to miss the mark. It means to be led astray. By the time we get to the fifth chapter, these ways that we're sinning, they're not called chata. It is chata. It's missing the mark. It's moving out of the way. But that's not what this offering we're about to read about is called. The offering is called a sham. And a sham in Hebrew does not deal with just missing the mark. It deals with the results of it. It's one thing to know that you didn't get it right. It's another thing to feel the weight of the guilt from not having gotten it right and not be able to be free from it. The fifth chapter of Leviticus is not about you not getting it right or sinning. The fifth chapter of Leviticus is about how much the Lord loves you and desires for you to be completely free of the resulting guilt from you not getting it right. Raise your hand if you believe that the Lord thinks when He's examined your life, that there's no sin in it. So if you sin, could we just say he found what he expected to find? The issue is not with the fact that you missed it. The issue is the fact of what it causes when you miss it. See, we miss the intentions of the enemy as well as our master. We miss both. The intention of our master is to free us from the effects of sin and purge sin itself from the world so we don't deal with its effects. The intention of the enemy is not to get you to sin. Have you ever wondered about that? If you sin privately, there's no such thing. But if you do, if you're in your car and nobody knows about it, and you sin privately, but you love the Lord, who did it hurt, right? How badly does it hurt you? When you are not able to step into the presence of God freely because you feel it. When the next time you would give an inspired word and testify to the truth, you can't because you feel unclean and gripping. The enemy wants to hold you down through guilt. Am I the only one that when I read those first four or five verses about failing to speak up when I should have? Or not doing but having a hand in it with those who have done something wrong, that you begin to think about, oh God, I've done that. I did that last week. I did that yesterday. Promised to do something. I promised to fix Lindsay's vacuum yesterday. After I closed the door and went upstairs and finished doing what I was doing, I forgot all about it. I didn't remember it again until just then. We are almost incapable 
of living in an honest fashion unless the Holy Spirit is leading us in everything we do. But that is not the point of this chapter. If, this, if that was the point of this chapter, he would talk about cha-ta, cha-ta, cha-ta. You missed the mark, you missed the mark, you missed the mark, you missed the mark. But he doesn't. The word that is used here over and over and over is asham. Listen to this verse. When anyone is guilty, this is asham. In the Strong's, it's number 816. It literally means the effects that you feel from sin. When anyone is weighed down with guilt. Why are we talking about a sham here, but we were talking about chata earlier? <laughs> earlier, he's talking about sin when you didn't know it. When it was unintentional, you missed the mark. Here we're talking about things you did on purpose. Isn't that a whole other level? I mean, it's one thing that I just forgot to fix Lindsay's vacuum, isn't it? I mean, I literally just forgot. It'd be another thing if I broke it on purpose, wouldn't it? Am I the only one that, what, are y'all asleep? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something else? Yeah. It's one thing if in anger I discipline Judah too hard. He's 14 years old, right? He's almost a man. He can take it. It'd be another if I did the exact same thing to an infant, wouldn't it? We all know that there are scales that we're working with. All sin is bad. It all misses the mark. We're talking about the weight of guilt that comes upon us when we knew better and did or did not do it anyway. Does that make sense? Yeah. Listen to what he says we're going to do about it. When anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must confess in what way he has sinned. Boy, that is a big, big step. Confess to who? Confess how? Well, in this case, there were anointed priests who stood in the stead of the Lord. Ambassadors, if you will, who stood there as if the Lord was there himself. And that's who they confessed to when they brought an offering. We tend to think that confession, because we're Protestants and not Catholic, is a very private matter. If it's a very private matter, what would be the point of confessing? See, something freeing happens when you hear Cassidy give a word that says someone is gripped with bitterness. They're gripped with bitterness to the point that it's an obstacle between them and the Lord. Everybody sits there. We wait. J.J. pauses in the song, but nobody stands up and says, Brothers, that was me. At least I think it was me, because my heart's beating out of my chest, and the truth is, I'm bitter. But I want to lay it down now. That would be how you begin to get completely free of a thing. But whoever that was, right now, gets to wrestle with, Was it me? Was it not me? You know, maybe I shouldn't, but I don't think so. And what you're really doing is justifying your position. You're hardening your heart. You're putting another layer on that keeps you from getting rid of the asham that is weighing you down and making you unproductive in the Lord. When anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must confess in what way he has sinned. And as a penalty for the sin he has committed, don't we think that's what the law is all about? Penalty. It's penalty. It's all about penalty. I mean, it's just about penalty. It's you're always bringing something. You're always carrying an offering. You're always doing this. You're never clean. You're always unclean. In fact, all of the preaching and teaching about the law in most circles is all about how it shows you how guilty you are. That's a little bit... It's a little bit like saying a map is only to show you how lost you are. The law simply is right. It will show you how guilty you are. 
It will also show you how right on track you are. When anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must confess in what way he has sinned. And as a penalty for the sin he has committed, he must bring to the Lord a female lamb or a goat from the flock as a... This word in the English here is often translated sin. It really means guilt. Guilt offering and a sham offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him from his chata, sin. So get this. We're making an atonement because sin was committed, but what we're really dealing with is the guilt that comes from that. Have you never been in a situation where you were not as effective for the Lord because you felt like your life was compromised? Because I'm a pastor and I've been there. Right? You know, it's kind of like Moses. Moses, uh, he killed an Egyptian. What did he do with him? Hit him in the sand. And then the very next day, it just so happens... He sees two Egyptians fight. I mean, two Israelites fighting, right? What do they say to him when he tries to separate them? Who made you a ruler over us? Do you want to kill us like you did that guy? Moses, covered in guilt, runs away in 40 years of his life for about overcoming those kind of events. How many times have we done that? We know that these two men shouldn't be fighting, but because we're in conflict with so many people, we don't feel as if we could point it out. The Bible is trying to free us from that so we can be who God called us to be. It's trying to strip away the field and reveal the treasure. It is trying to strip away all of the outer workings and the hard shell of the oyster so we can get to the pearl. The obedience of the nations belongs to Jesus and it starts with you. If he cannot afford a lamb, by the way, he said a lamb or a goat. Isn't that an interesting thing? Look, what I want is this very specific thing. It needs to be a female, and it can be a lamb or a goat. If you can't afford a lamb or a goat, bring me two doves or two pigeons. If you can't afford two doves or two pigeons, bring me some flour, and put some oil in it. I cannot find any other offering in all of the Bible that works like this, where there's a descending tier of cost based on your need. Every other offering simply is what it is. But when, a sin offering is what it is. But when it comes to dealing with the effects of sin, the guilt that would stifle God's people, he said, bring to me a lamb. Or a goat. They may not have a lamb or a goat. Or two doves. Gosh, what if they can't get two doves? Or two pigeons. What if they can't find two pigeons? Or an ephah of fine flour. Put some oil in it. Do you hear the heart of our God? He is so desiring for you to be free of guilt. To have your sin dealt with and stand before Him feeling atoned for, that he offers option after option. No goats? Or, or no, no lambs? Let's go for goats. No goats? Let's go for... Let's, let's see, they all have birds. How, how about two doves? No doves? Let's try pigeons. No pigeons? You people got to eat. You got flour. Just bring me flour. So why on earth would a holy God do that? Because the holy God's most intimate desire 
is that you be who He's called you to be. Free from the effects of sin. Sin is in the world. There's no question about it. It's been raining in man, but it's not supposed to rain in us. And when it comes down to the church's failure, it has failed to get free from the effects of sin. Free from the guilt. So it lacks confidence. It's insecure. It doesn't speak up when it should. It shuts up when it shouldn't. It refuses to stretch out for fear that all of those fingers will be pointed back in our direction. Or we just don't care. I'm not sure which is the case. I think in this group you do care. I think in this group you're moved by messages that show you how much the Lord cares for you. And I appreciate men of God like Mike that brought that. What an amazing word. That show you what Jesus spent on your behalf. I'm persuaded with the other side of the coin. If he has gone that far, if he has made it that easy, if he said, no lambs, try goats. No goats, try birds. Don't have this kind of bird, try that kind of bird. Don't have any birds at all, try flower. But I need you free from this. I want to say at what point do we have an obligation to take him up on any offer anywhere you can meet him at? Like rungs of a ladder, friend. People have asked me for years, do you believe that we should tithe? I believe you should be obedient to the Lord. Well, is it gross? Is it net? How does all that work? Is it 10%? I like to laugh and say, you know, the Jews in Israel, it was more like 45%, right? Nobody likes any of those answers. So I started just saying, you know what? Start with the Lord in obedience wherever you can start. And let it grow. That's kind of like what the Lord is saying here. You don't have this. You don't have this. You don't have this. You have to have flour. Let's start with that. Because if you never get free from the trappings of sin, you will never accomplish anything for the Lord. He offered sacrifices for the sin they didn't know about. But sin they did know about, he offered tiered sacrifices because he wanted them free from guilt. How badly does the Lord want you free? from guilt. Hold your hand here. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. Everybody tell me when you're there. Y'all are quiet this morning. You're making me nervous. Y'all don't want me to be a timid pastor up here telling you lollipops and cotton candy. Look at verse 16. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. From the very beginning, this has been God's plan. He said, if you've sinned and you don't know about it, here's the offerings. 
They'll be offered on your behalf for Aaron. If you sin and you do know about it, here's the offering because I do not want you covered in guilt. I want you to walk out and tell the world there is a God who is ridding the world of sin and removing its effects. And it's best demonstrated in somebody who believes it's happening in their life. One of the things that I like most about Mike's message, if I'm honest, and I'm just going to brag on Mike for a minute, <clears throat> for no other reason than I'm really bragging on Jesus. There are times I have seen Mike second-guess himself. There are times that I've seen Mike stand and preach, and I felt as if he overthought it. I felt as if he was very concerned about how you would receive it. That may not be true. This was just my perception. But when the man got the revelation that he was like a treasure... And Jesus went and bought the whole field just to obtain him. That he was like a pearl. And Jesus went and gave everything just that he would obtain that pearl. I felt like Mike was preaching right out of his spirit. And I felt like he believed it was true about himself. Did y'all get that impression as well? Yes. Did you find him effective as a minister of God? Oh, yeah. How effective would you be as a minister of God? If you were free from the effects of sin because you believed it had truly been put away. It was not there. No guilt. No shame. Only the message. Yes, I did those things. Yes, I even struggle in these areas today. But my God has freed me from shame that I might proclaim to you the message. You can be reconciled then. It's not an angry God with a stick waiting to squash you. He is the kind of God that gives every ounce of Him to purchase you. Isn't that a beautiful message? Yeah. It's not being preached. It's not being preached in a way that's believable. It is being proclaimed from silver suits, silver hair, and silver smiles. Because they all want your silver. But it is not being proclaimed in the lives of people. You would not have to hide in gated communities. You would not have to have secret service Christian agents to protect anybody from getting close. You would not have to have an assistant that walks with you so that if anybody comes close, they herd you off. You would not have to do those things if the essential message in your life was, I am incredibly guilty of sin, but I feel completely liberated because the God who loves me wiped it away. If that was actually the message, you wouldn't have to do those things. We wouldn't have to have a facade. You wouldn't see me as a pastor only if I appeared on the back of a book with a library in the background and a three-piece suit in the front foreground. You would be looking for the man who had been most weighed down by sin and was now the freest. And that would be the one you would believe if God could cancel his debts and he could literally walk in it like that, then surely he can help me. Tell me, who in here is not capable of that? You know, those that have been forgiven much love much. Look at verse 11. If, however, he cannot afford two doves or two young pigeons. Verse 7. If he cannot afford a lamb. Verse 13, in this way, the priest will make atonement for him for any of these sins 
he has committed, and he will be forgiven. Man, what would it be? Darren, was there ever a point in your life, because I remember when I met you, and you had come out of some difficulties, right? Can you imagine the most difficult day when whatever it is happened, and you saw no way out except judgment and condemnation? Somebody said, hey, Darren, it would be $100,000 and it would go away. You don't have 100000 It would be 10000 and it would go away. You don't have 1000 You don't have 10000 You don't have 1000 Come on, Darren, what do you have? I got about a buck. Okay, it's gone away. How would you feel about that? You know, there are services all over Houston advertised to repair your credit. I'm going to tell you, that's a joke. It's a joke. You know why? Your credit is, is it's a reflection of how we do, and that can't be repaired except by doing better. I mean, that's just how it is. I've had good and have bad, and praise God, have, now have none. <laughs> that, that's where you ought to shoot for, is, is none. We would not pay for things like that if we did not value a clean slate, a starting over, a sincere freedom. The one place in your life that's actually true and not a gimmick to sell you is the Lord, but you have to trust Him and believe it. You know, I think the devil's done a fairly successful job, and that's all the praise he's going to get from me today, of convincing the church that we're something other than what God called us to be. Any sin could be forgiven, and that was the older covenant. How much more are these things true in Christ? Turn with me to Leviticus 9. Leviticus 5 is all about sin and how you deal with it, guilt and how you deal with it. Let's look at Leviticus 9. Is there anybody in here that would like to see the Lord? Amen. Wow, that's all that would like to see the Lord? I mean, I, I figured that was about 70%. I knew we'd have a majority, but I was kind of looking for a landslide. How many of you would like to see the Lord? Okay, that's how elections should go. Look at chapter 9 of Leviticus, and let us start with verse 5. They took the things Moses commanded to them, I'm sorry, they took the things Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. How much of the assembly? The entire. Look, you know in any group of people you got a slacker though, right? Am I the only one in here who's ever on an athletic team? Who, who in here has been on an athletic team? So you got to run wind sprints. Don't you know that there's one Mississippi that you're going to outperform every time because he just, he just not going to do it, right? None of you were that Mississippi, huh? <laughs> we actually had kind of a ranking on our team. We knew who was supposed to come in first, who was supposed to come in second, who was supposed to come in third. So you'd brother-in-law it a little bit. As long as that's between Cass and Jim, that's where I was supposed to be. Coach won't notice. And we all stepped it back a little bit. Except this one guy. Man, I loved him and hated him all at the same time. It was Brad Lively. A lot of y'all don't know who he is. He ran all out every time. He made us all look bad. Coach thought he was just that much faster than all of us. He's just the only one that was giving an honest effort every time. The entire assembly before the Lord. Can you imagine that an entire nation, every man, woman, child, every ugly uncle, mean aunt, Selfish grandma, disrespectful kid, every single one. God had atoned for their sin in a way that they could stand before Him. 
man, we can't get a church service sometimes where every person can stand before the Lord. How special is that? Look at what Leviticus 9 talks about. This is amazing. Leviticus 9 is really about how a priesthood begins. Church, we're called to be a nation of priests. That calling was given to Israel, and it has fallen on all those who are grafted into Israel. We are supposed to be a nation of priests. And look at this. The entire assembly came near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. What would you do to know that the glory of the Lord was going to appear to you? Has anybody here known anybody saw a vision? You all should have your hands up. My wife saw one just a month ago. Right? Is there a little bit of you that thinks sometimes, you know, I want to see a vision. So three people are nodding their head, right? Well, the rest of you not want the Lord or you just, you're scared. And look, these messages get longer the quieter you get. Yeah, now, now we got people. He's about to tell an entire nation, if you do what I'm telling you to do, you will see, say see, see the glory of the Lord. How cool is that? That's very cool. Let's look and see what he told them to do. Maybe it's just out of our reach, you know? This is what the Lord has commanded you to do so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and the people. Sacrifice the offering that is for the people and make atonement for them too as the Lord has commanded. Did you catch the order? Sacrifice for yourself first. And then the people. This is a little bit like Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see the speck in your brother's eye. If we approach the Lord with an attitude that says, I must first deal with my sin, get free from guilt, get free from those things, and then I am free so that I can go help my brothers get free. If that was our heart, you know what you would have in here? A bunch of people that say, I'm free! I'm free! Instead of a bunch of folks that feel free today and not so free tomorrow and really feel like religion is a neat thing but kind of a private matter. The whole nation was going to get to see the Lord. But it happened with some going first and then them helping all of the others come. You know what else was like that? The conquest of Canaan. Anybody ever read about that? you know what Transjordanian tribes are? They're not tribes from uh, Jordan or Amman. What happened is some of the tribes found their inheritance on one side of the river, right? They said, we love this place. Can we stay here? Moses said, you can. You can stay here, but not till every other Israelite has their inheritance. You go fight for every one of them, and then we all know this is your inheritance. You've got it. Then you come back and settle here. What happens is we first find ourselves in the presence of God. We remove sin. We remove guilt by the power of the name of Jesus. And then we make it our mission not to rest on that, but let every one of our brothers do the same. And when we rest, it will be all of us together. He gives an order of offerings here for a reason. It's an important order. Look at verse 15. 
Aaron then brought the offering that was for the people. He took the goat for the people's sin offering and slaughtered it as and offered it for a sin offering as he did with the first one. He brought the burnt offering and offered it in, in, in the prescribed way. He also brought the grain offering and took a handful of it and burned it on the altar in addition to the morning's burnt offering. He slaughtered the ox and the ram as a fellowship offering. And then he describes how he did that. First Aaron went and took care of his sin, took care of his guilt. And then he began to lead others in a progression to take them closer and closer to the Lord. This is the call of a Christian. Your sin problem, your guilt problem gets taken care of. And then your job is to go find brothers. Who is my brother? Who is my neighbor? It's whoever you run into. It's whoever God brings across your path. And we take them through a progression to help them inherit the same thing we are. What would be wrong with Aaron if he went out and it was all sacrifice? He goes, wow, I feel clean, Lord. I feel good. And all the people are out there and he went, bye. I'm going home. There's a game on TV. I'm going home. I'm hungry. I'm going home. I got all I want. Well, if this was Aaron Jones instead of Aaron Levi, that might be what have happened. Because that's the attitude with which we're surrounded by. I'm saved and I know it. Well, good for you. Good for you. What about the rest of the world? And by the way, if you think you're standing firm, Paul said, stand firm that nothing may shake you. I'm convinced that we've not really dealt with our sin problems. We've not really dealt with our guilt problems because if we had, we would be so liberated we would want to run and tell everybody else. And we can't say it's too hard. God had such a descending scale of offerings that we didn't just start with lambs and goats and move all the way down to flour. We've now made it to the place where he said, you know what, you don't have to give anything. I'm going to give it all. I have a son. He'll make atonement for you. All you got to do is do what he says. And if that's too hard, if it's too hard for you to just know what he says and do it, here's a book. Here's a book that tells you. And if that's too hard, well then, I will put some of me that was in him in the fullest extent into you. And the Holy Spirit will help you. Amen. And you know what we find ourselves doing? Nothing. Church, we ought to be the most active people on the planet. We ought to be running from door to door telling everybody, you know what? I did terrible things. I mean, you would be shocked how terrible they were, but we're not talking about those because I got free. I got completely free. Amen, Ryan? I remember when you got free. And when you get free, you can't help but go tell people, you know, I know I did that, but I don't even feel guilty anymore. I just feel an obligation. To live my life for the Lord. It's almost as if somebody made a public charge. You couldn't help but speak up. So much had been done for you. You couldn't help but stand up for a God like that. It's almost as if if you saw even the animals doing something that was sin. 
You'd have nothing to do with them. You'd get away from them. It's almost as if even if members of your own household were sinning, you would have no hand in it and you would refuse to make promises you couldn't keep because God had given you a clean start and you didn't want to do anything to foul that up. Are you hearing me? Yes. yes. Did you know that the gospel was embedded beautifully in Leviticus? Amen. We hadn't even got to the good part yet. <laughs> he offered for them a chata, a sin offering. The next offering that he brought was an ola. This offering is an offering of ascension. It's a burnt offering. It said, now that your sin is dealt with, watch this, friends. Just like this smoke rises before God, you can envision your spirit rising to commingle with His. You can envision you coming right into His presence. This is what this was to teach Israel. When sin is dealt with, God loves you enough to allow you to come into His presence. How many times we come into church and we say, man, Jesus is going to show up today. No, Jesus is always there. He's waiting for us to deal with sin and the effects of it, the guilt, so that we show up there. Amen. They dealt with the sin offering. Then they moved right on to a burnt offering, an offering of ascension in Hebrew, uh, an ola. The next offering, verse 17 says, He also brought a grain offering. This is a mincha. It is a bloodless tribute. He said, now that you're ascending into my presence, now that your sin's been done away with, you need to know something. I don't want blood from you. I just want you to bring me something of your life. Something that you value. A token of your affection before me. I specifically am telling you, don't let there be any blood in it. It is a mincha. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And what is all this preparation for? It's preparation for them to see the glory of God. He is leading them into His presence. The last thing that He said was in verse 18, He slaughtered the ox and the ram as a fellowship offering, a shalem. I want to have peace with you. I want to have thanksgiving between the two of us. Anybody have a Thanksgiving meal recently? I hope yours was as good as mine. If it wasn't, you can come to my house next year. He wanted to have that family setting with his children where you had that sense everything is right in the world. may not have been right yesterday, we might get a month down the road and it all blow up on us again. But right now, it just feels good. There's no problems between us. What would you give to have that with the Lord? Because it's already been paid for for you. It's already been paid for for you. He found in you what he expected to find. Sin. And he is showing us how to get rid of sin, but not just sin, the guilt that comes from it. He's showing us how after that is done to rise into his presence. In the rising in His presence, He's showing us that what He wants from us is not our bloodshed. He wants a token of affection. He wants us to give of what He's given us back to Him and show Him we trust Him. He says, I want peace with you enough to let there be more bloodshed, but it won't be yours. Bring me a ram, a king of the sheep. He'll shed His blood that we might have fellowship, shalom. You know what happens next? Anybody want to guess what happened next? No brave people out there? 
The wave offering is part of the fellowship offering. Verse 22. And lifted his hands towards the people and blessed them. When you have been forgiven of your sin, when you feel one with the Lord, you don't have any problem blessing and not cursing. He raised his hands towards them and blessed them. Look at then verse 23. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out of the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. We had an outline. Deal with your sin. Throw away your guilt. Ascend to me. I'm making a way. I'm tearing the veil in the temple. I am opening the stairway to heaven. I am Bethel, the house of God. He is saying, I am making a way for you and I to have fellowship with each other and it's bloodless because I, the king of the sheep, will have already shed my blood. That's found in Leviticus, friends. I wonder what else is waiting there for you to mine out. Are y'all done? Could we give you another scripture? I hadn't been preaching an hour yet. I often preach an hour and a half. I feel as if I'm starting to hit my prime. (laughs) Could we go to Leviticus 16? Are you done with Leviticus? No. No. Go to Leviticus. I'll tell you what. I will, out of honor for your time, I will give you one verse from Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, does anybody have a chapter title? The Day of Atonement. <laughs> you know the Day of Atonement is for one nation. That's an amazing thing. One nation, the nation of Israel. But every individual has a Day of Atonement, don't we? Yeah. Isn't there a day in which your life became different, Jennifer? Sometimes hard to nail down that day, especially if you've got a bad boyfriend in your life dragging you down. But when he gets his life right with God, there was a moment you get to choose. Am I going this way or that way? And boy, that choice made all the difference in the world, didn't it? We like to argue about when somebody was saved. Well, I was saved on this day. I'd like to argue about when your life changed, okay? I'm just not all that interested in calling something saved that never looked saved. Uh, Those of you that are clinging to that testimony that says, I was saved when I was eight, and I backslid for the next 35 years, (laughs) I would encourage you, to swallow your pride and throw that testimony in the garbage because it is. It's garbage. Okay? At best, maybe you had a warm fuzzy when you were eight. At best, maybe you were dedicated to the Lord today. Maybe marked for the Lord. Maybe declared somebody that could be saved. I don't know what happened to you, but I know this. You know a tree by its fruit. And if the tree has no fruit, or if the tree has bad fruit, I'm not going to call it something it's not. So don't get mad at me when I don't accept your testimony. Okay, I don't accept mine. Mom, how many times was I baptized? Almost every time I was suspended. That was a bunch. (laughs) I was trying to wash the yucky off and it just stuck, right? But there was a day of atonement where my life changed. You ready for your one verse from Leviticus 16? Verse 32. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make oh my goodness you probably want more more I got to keep my promise I'm not going to read you another verse but check this out there's a high priest 
God says to Moses, look, I want you to do this, this, and this. You're going to tell Aaron that. Then tell Aaron to tell his anointed son to make atonement for the people. That really threw me because the reality is that Aaron made atonement. It wasn't the anointed son. Aaron did the day of atonement. It was not the anointed son. But the, first, the scripture foresaw a day when Aaron would have to have a son who was anointed and would wipe away the sins of the people. Listen to me, church. Are you hearing that? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And how did John announce him? Behold, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. Tell me that is not good. Aaron didn't just have one son. He had a whole series of sons. And it went on and on and on and on. But out of Egypt, God didn't just call Israel. Matthew spoke about that verse and said, He called Jesus. Out of, Israel, out of Egypt I have called my son. He said that spoke of Jesus. Those of you that read Matthew in your Bible readings are shaking your head, yes. Jesus is the personification of Israel. He is both the offering that is being offered in Leviticus and the priest who is offering the offering. Do you know why? Because he is the living, breathing Torah. Every time you read any of these things, you are reading about Jesus. Amen. You just have to pray that the Lord open your eyes so that you see the wonderful things in the law. If you have a different translation there, attempting to say what this verse is actually intended in its most liberal text to say is, hey, Moses, I'm telling you to tell Aaron this, but I also want Aaron to tell his son, only his son is to do this in the future. In other words, it would only be one high priest who could do these things. That was the literal intention. Of course, when we read it, and one translation says, tell the priest to take the anointed son who stands in his father's stead, and he will make atonement for the people. Did Jesus stand in his father's stead? Yes. Was he an anointed priest? Yeah, yeah, Did he make atonement for the people? Yeah, yeah. Because there's a descending scale of cost. God would do whatever it took to get your attention so that he could remove the effects of sin from you. Does anybody in here have a goat? No. Anybody in here have a lamb? No. Anybody in here own two doves? No. <laughs> anybody in here own two pigeons? No. We've decided that we can't bring our pure flower because it didn't grow in Israel. So now what is left for us? God sent the anointed son. Amen. Come on now. Let's close with this. I told you I was going to read you one more verse from Leviticus. I didn't say anything about the book of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 9. It's like Brandon's Bible knows where to go. There. It's quick. His Bible is quick. Bandit's pretty quick. <laughs> Hebrews is hiding from me. You have to forgive me here for a minute. Hebrews 5 talks about Jesus as a high priest, but I'd rather start in 9 because I figure you're only going to give me so much time before you riot. <laughs> 
nobody riots anymore. Nobody, nobody even loudly protests anymore. They just leave. You know what I'm saying? We don't care enough to fight about anything. We just cross our arms and leave. We really, if we're not careful, we're in danger of becoming a Prozac society. Just completely dispassionate about everything, including the Lord. You know, if you think that we're doing something wrong, that's okay. I love you. I think lots of things you do are wrong. But if we never discuss it, how are either of us going to get right? You know, it's a really difficult thing when you're speaking to people that have been trained to be silent, trained to be fairly expressionless. That's like some strange kind of stoicism we picked up in church. And then the only real feedback you'll ever get is their absence. And you don't know, is that absence because they simply are absent? Or is that absence intended to say something? You follow me? This is the position of the American pastor. Right? I would prefer a relationship where you simply said what you meant, what you thought. Rachel and I have had some discussions lately. So have Keith and I. I really, I'm having a good time with this couple because they say exactly what they mean. Sometimes they're shocked by what I say. Sometimes I'm shocked by what they say. But at the end of the day, we have a pretty good idea where each other are. I would encourage you that that's what Jesus meant when he said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. I would drive duplicity out of my life. I would not smile to someone that you really are not happy with. I wouldn't do it. I would tell them I'm really not happy. And I would not sit in a situation that I thought was not right and not speak up because from Leviticus all the way to the book of Revelation, it says it's wrong. But if you're unhappy in the situation, it's not unholy, it's not wrong, it's not anti-biblical, I consider it might be you that needs to change. Is that a fair statement? A fair assessment? I take very seriously the things you guys say to me. You know why? I realize if you actually said it, there's probably a whole lot more under the surface you didn't have the courage to say. Yeah? And it's a difficult balance for all pastors. I submit myself to the elders in the church, to the overseers regularly. I want to know. Hey, I was told this the other day. You see truth in that? It's not a pat me on the back session. It doesn't work that way. Sometimes they see truth in it. <laughs> yeah, Eric, you are kind of... Okay, help me change. Right? I hope that's your attitude. This is what the Bible teaches us. This is how we're... It is the people of God. There is a prescribed way, and it's our job to follow it, and all of us are missing it. <laughs> but if we don't do something about it and don't help each other... We're never going to get anywhere with the Lord. A good test for a ministry too, by the way, now that I'm off track and not in Hebrews 9, Cass, is from the day you entered it to whatever day you left it, happy or mad, are you further along in the Lord? That's a good test for ministry. And then when you're tempted to say, well, I'm further along in the Lord because I, I, I love the Lord. I read the Word. I did that. I would have done it with Him or without Him. Ask yourself, did you do it with them or without them before you got there? See, I've had difficult things happen to ministry. I could be really mad at a couple ministries. But I love them because they left me off better than I was when I met them. A whole lot wasn't right, just like a whole lot's not right here. But they left me better than they found me. That's really what you want, isn't it? Yeah, me too. 
Y'all in Hebrews 9? Because that's the only way we'll close is if we read Hebrews 9. I have to read some of them too. Hebrews 9, here comes verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered by the most he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of bulls the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. That, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The aim of both is exactly the same. Deal with your sin. Get you free from guilt. That you might help the rest of the world do the same. It's just that one had to be repeated over and over. It's like it wore off. And another could be done once for all time. <clears throat> Our king is amazing. Look at the 24th verse. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself. Now to appear for us in the presence of God. It's almost like he rose in that burnt offering. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus wants to do away with sin and the effects of sin. I could stand here and tell you, don't sin. And I pretty well do every week. But that's really not going far enough. The rest of the story is when you do sin, you have an advocate who treasures you. And if you desire to turn from it with all of your heart, and you take concrete steps to do that, he will meet you. In that desire, he will empower you to do it because all he has ever wanted is for you to be free from guilt. <clears throat> to be reconciled, that you could go be his ambassador to the world and reconcile the rest of the world. Last scripture from Hebrews, starting in 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have what? Confidence. How many of you are confident in your walk? Confident that when you pray, not only does he hear you, but I can pray and right now be in the presence of the Lord. We act like it's an effort. We act like it's difficult. We have to work into it. We have to get our emotions right. The worship team has to get their songs right. The temperature needs to be right. The mood needs to be right to get into the presence of God. He says we should have confidence to enter the most holy place by what? 
It's not the worship team. It's not the environment. It's not your track record. It's the blood of Jesus. So in what way does it depend upon your effort? Only to deal with sin with the blood of Jesus. That's not a one-time thing. His sacrifice was a one-time thing. This is a daily thing, a repetitive thing. When I sin, I realize not only is the sin the problem, it's the results of the sin that are going to try to keep me from doing what God called me to do. Cover me in shame. Make me ineffective, insecure, timid. Stand up here and tell you all God loves you because if I tell you anything else, I'll be scared about what it means for my life. Are you beginning to understand why so many ministries are what they are? When you are right with God, you can boldly point out sin because you have a bold solution for the sin. Yes, sin, it's terrible, it's wrong, it's wicked, stop it. But if you've done it, here's how we get out of it and its effects. Because God wants to appear to you today. It's not hard to get into that. I asked you all, what would you do to be, to see, to be in the presence of God? And everybody was excited about that. The whole nation in Israel got to <coughs> We get to every single worship service and we have a hard time concentrating without going to get water five times to go to the bathroom twice. Could it be that we've just learned some contempt for something because it didn't cost us a ram? It didn't cost us a goat? It didn't cost us two doves? It didn't cost us two pigeons? He didn't even take our flower from us. He came and did it all. Should we love a God like that more or less? More. I would say more. In your scripture readings this week, I wanted to mention two things, and we're not going to read them because you've read them. In Matthew 21, there's a parable of the vineyard. A man sends workers to a vineyard, and they're mistreated. So he finally sends a son. And what do they do with the son? They kill him. They want to take his inheritance. After telling that parable in the last part of the chapter, the religious leaders of the day came to a conclusion. He's talking about us. <coughs> What a conclusion. You know how many times I get to answer that question as a pastor, Charlie? People say, you were talking about me? And if Mario asks, I say, yes, Mario, I was talking about you. And then John comes and he asks, I says, yes, I was talking about you. Did you have me in mind when you said this? Yes, Larissa, I had you in mind and you as well, Mike. I've learned that answer because you cannot win with this. As a pastor, I'm supposed to be talking about you. Who else would I be talking to? Right? Everybody's looking for a reason to be offended. You know what they decided to do? They realized Jesus was talking about them. Y'all read it. You read it yesterday. It was on your scripture readings yesterday. What did they decide to do? Arrest it. You have a choice today with a word like this. You can arrest it. You can bottle it. You can decide who's talking about me and he's not right for doing that. Blah, 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 blah. Blah and more blah. And you can arrest it. You know what? You won't be anything but guilty. It won't do anything to get that stuff off of your shoulders. Maybe this ministry, me most of all, maybe the whole body of Christ has abused you and been difficult to you. Maybe we, we've been hard on you in every way. Unjustly. The other thing that you read this week was about Joseph. Joseph in Genesis 45. Didn't y'all read Genesis yeah. 45 this week? Yeah. Did his brothers treat him badly? Yeah. Yeah. What'd they do to him? Sold him into slavery. They contemplated killing him. 
And then he went from slavery to being accused of rape to being in a prison and not let out and all kind of things. You know what he said when he reunited with his brothers? Hey, don't be angry with yourselves. What you intended to harm me, God intended for the saving of lives. And it's being done now. So I would tell you this. If you feel stepped on, especially by me, right? Because I tried to do that. I tried to step on you sometimes. If you feel stepped on, Maybe you could take a Joseph attitude and say, mm, even if Eric intended to harm me, even if the ministry set out to single me out, maybe it was for the saving of lives. Amen. Maybe God allowed it to happen to save a life. Then ask whether or not that life might be yours. Could it be somebody cared enough to not sit back silently? Because that's our goal. Amen. Amen.